1: Welcome to The Brief. My name is Edwina Landale and this week we are having a look at refugee policy, public opinion and the gap between the two. Pacific Island Nauru is the site of one of Australia's offshore immigration detention facilities. Prime Minister Scott Morrison last week raised the prospect of transferring asylum seekers to New Zealand. New Zealand has had a standing offer to take in 150 detainees from Manus Island and Nauru since 2013, which has been rejected for years on the basis that it would be a backdoor to Australia. The Prime Minister has been one of the strongest voices against this offer in the past, but is now facing increasing internal pressure from Parliament, strong public sentiment and international censure regarding the detention centres. This is a murky area of Australian policy. The exact conditions within the camps are unknown, and refugees are such a highly politicised group of people that it's difficult to know when government sentiment is sincere and when it's simply empty rhetoric. Marian Leigh has advocated on behalf of refugees since the arrival of the first Vietnamese boat people in the mid-1970s and has worked around the world on behalf of refugee populations. She was named as the Bicentennial Canberra Citizen of the Year in 1988, awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia in 1990, the Ostcare Paul Cullen Award for Outstanding Contribution to Refugees in 1994, and the Human Rights Medal in 2003 for her work in promoting human rights over the last three decades. Marion now works as a consultant and registered migration agent, and this week I visited her in her home to draw on her decades of experience in refugee advocacy. Thank you for joining us today, Marion.
2: You're very welcome. It's lovely to be able to talk to you.
1: So, over the last few weeks, the Australian government has seemingly softened towards refugees, while the Nauruan government has evicted various medical professionals. Are these political attitudes coordinated? Or do you think that the two governments are acting towards different goals right now?
2: I think there's an element of coordination in this. Um, the the Australian government really hasn't softened its stance. I don't believe for one minute that um, Scott Morrison really wants to back down, but he's a political opportunist. So... The fact that at the moment they seem to be making some sort of steps to do something in relation to taking up the New Zealand offer is, again, in my opinion, a furphy. And it's driven mainly by their concern about the coming election at the weekend, this weekend in Wentworth. As for the Nauruan government, wow, they're driven also by the need to keep up the money coming in. I was in Nauru twice, or three times, sorry, in 2003, 2004, and I was basically responsible for covertly interviewing all the refugees who were remaining there at that time and working um, behind the scenes with the Department of Immigration and with the then Minister Amanda Vanstone to bring those people furtively to Australia. Because again, John Howard has said at that time, these people will never step foot in Australia. But in fact, the reality is that the majority of them did. You know, what's going on now is that same problem, but there isn't any kind of real political will on the part of the Liberal government to solve it in that manner, because they like to have uh, Manus and Nauru there as a kind of, we stop the boats, we are sticking to our word. But as soon as the Labour Party get in, you know, the boats, Will start flowing again. So there's no real political will, in my opinion, for the government to back down. So,
1: what did your interviews, your furtive interviews, involve while you were there? I mean, what kind of questions and answers were you looking for?
2: Well, at the time when I went to Nauru in 2003, 2004, my position was first of all to work with the UNHCR to find some kind of a solution. I was there with the expressed aim of resolving the situation for those people primarily, but also for Australia, because it was clear that it was becoming untenable. The main focus of my attention was to find out who these people were and whether, in fact, they were legitimately able to claim refugee status, and um, predominantly that was the case.
1: Do you think that this claim that Scott Morrison has made that He will only accept New Zealand's offer of accepting 150 refugees if the Australian government agrees that the back door will be closed. Do you think that that's some kind of move to prevent any real solution being reached in terms of New Zealand's offer?
2: I think so. For one thing, I'm a New Zealander. I was born in New Zealand. I was raised in New Zealand. So I'm a dual citizen, unlike Barnaby Joyce, who did not recognize how wonderful that is. But as a New Zealander born and bred, I can tell you I do not believe for one minute that the New Zealand government or the New Zealand people will bow down to this so-called offer by Scott Morrison. It's, It's despicable, actually, to try to contain people's future lives in this manner. These people, let's remember, have done nothing wrong. So let's bring these people to Australia. Let's not bargain yet again with people's lives. We've been bargaining with these people from the day that they stepped foot on an Australian vessel. We have said, okay, we're going to use you as political tools. We will make sure that everybody will get a very clear message that if you come to Australia by boat in future, if they want to come here by boat in future, they will not be processed. And you people who happen to have come at this particular time are going to be Use as the evidence of that. And we've done that with these people to a degree that defies belief. So if we go back to what's the solution here, it is not a solution that we can palm off to New Zealand. And New Zealand, I don't believe, will do it. I'm pretty sure that Scott Morrison already knows that the New Zealand government will not agree to such a thing. I've seen that the Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand has come out and said very clearly that he opposes it, Because it will make people coming to New Zealand second grade citizens and Scott Morrison will know that. So I think that playing politics with people's lives like this is something that no decent country should do. Do you know what exactly the proposed legislation is that these are these are strange sort of questions because they're out of the parameters of normal legal dealings that we have we usually have someone who is represented when people are making decisions about their lives whether it's children um in families where the families break apart we have people who represent the children in that case and try to find out what's in the best interest of the child in the case of these people who've been sent offshore to Manus and Nauru, there is no one really representing them as such at the moment. My understanding is that that legislation will attempt to make it impossible for anyone who has been resettled in New Zealand from Manus or Nauru ever coming to Australia for any reason. Now, there's a, there are huge problems there. But one of the biggest problems is the sense that we are making some kind of determination about the future of people when we have no understanding of where they will go in in their own personal lives or what will happen. That's one issue. There are a large number of these people who have their wives or their husbands, some of their family here in Australia already. And under normal migration processes, a husband or a wife who's here would be able to sponsor those people you know here as a, as a family reunion situation but that isn't going to be the case so they can very easily do that in because regu- what people don't always understand is that the migration act is not there to enable people to come in for everybody it's it's there to determine who we're going to keep out who we don't want what your listeners need to understand is that when these determinations were made as to who would go to Manus or who would go to Nauru, they were done in a very cruel manner, which reminded me very much of the film Sophie's Choice, you know, where people are in a line and you go this way or you go that way. And families are separated. And some families in that film, you know, Sophie had the choice, which of your children is going to go in that line and which one's going to stay with you. And in the end, she lost both of the children. They haven't seen the movie. You've ruined the ending. Oh, okay. well, it's a it's an amazing an amazing movie. But what the departmental officials did when they were interviewing um, people who arrived here after the cutoff date in two thousand and thirteen by boat, they virtually lined people up, did interviews with them, and then worked out whether or not they were in a certain category. They did it deliberately. We will divide say, the immigration officials. Okay, we'll divide it. We'll let one wife or the wife and one or two children into Australia and we'll send the father and maybe two children to Nauru and then one boy who might be a member of that family will send him to Manus. Deliberately splitting families. So it's almost arbitrary. It was, a, it was um, cruel from the outset. So that's why Scott Morrison, who was the architect of this, with the Secretary of the Department of Immigration, these two have um, made this a case that nobody will be able to encourage other people in their still category. So unaccompanied minors, no, nah, you're not getting into Australia. Family groups, no, you're not getting into Australia. People who've got sick people, not getting into Australia. Make sure you've got some from every category. You've been working
1: for refugee advocacy since the 70s. Uh, Is this an attitude that has developed as you've been working in this sector or do you think that's a border orientation that's been there for a long time?
2: Well, you know, there's always been divided opinion on whether people who are arriving by boat should be welcomed into Australia. That was the case back in the Indochina refugee days, which is when I started working with refugees. In 1977, a boat arrived. My husband was on that boat. It came directly from Vietnam. It carried 183 people and it was a, a reconditioned tanker. And there was a feeling that these people were escaping from something that we had fought against an ideology, uh, and, a, 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 and a, a group of people, the communist Vietnamese, and they were our friends. And we did resettle well over um, 100,000 Indo-Chinese from Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, very successfully in a very, very short time into the community. It wasn't without critics, of course. But people like me got involved at that time and I've continued to be involved into my old age. (laughs) But what did change was the fact that when 9-11 happened, John Howard was there and I think he got the biggest shock of his life and it impacted on him because he was, you know, he was taken down into the bunkers and he was on one of the very first planes that that left after the, after the Bin Laden family allegedly were flown out of America by by secret jet or government jet or something, but after that John Howard returned to Australia, and from that point on things changed. The attitude became one of fear, and I have to-
0: tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts. Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
2: To say John Howard's a decent person, but his knowledge of the international scene when he came to power, in my opinion, was very limited. He'd never been to Asia, for example.
1: So just to play devil's advocate here, I mean, people who support strict border control have argued that with millions of refugees worldwide, Australia's economy can't handle an open-door policy, that stopping the boats stops deaths at sea, and that Australia's large quota for legal immigration would suffer if
2: refugees were accepted. So do you think that any of these concerns are warranted... I don't think so. Again, we've got the slogans, you know. I mean, we can stop boats without causing people to die on remote islands, you know, in the Pacific. There's a way to solve these problems that involves setting up orderly migration so we can restrict who comes here. And we always have done that in the past. We did that with the Indochinese. What we're doing now, though, is doing something quite different to that. We're not saying we're trying to solve this problem of whether or not people can be resettled in Australia. We're not looking to a logical solution. We're just looking to fear-mongering so that we'll keep power if we're the Liberal Party. That's where this is so disgraceful because from the time when John Howard said we will decide who comes to this country and the method by which they come, From that day on, we have been driven by fear. Why not start setting up processing posts as we used to in the past inside Indonesia? So we really do decide who comes. At the moment, that's not happening. For example, in Pakistan, we do not have any Australians based in Quetta. Most of the work that is being done in Pakistan is done by officers in Dubai. We have what are called locally employed staff. They make the decisions onto who, who's going to get a visa and who is not. Not an Australian official sitting there determining, but a locally employed staff member. So, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of fallacies around what is going on in our migration program. So you
1: mentioned this fear-mongering, uh, and I'm wondering if you have an opinion on how the media has played into refugee profiling
2: in the last five or ten years. That's another very deep and complex question, isn't it, the role of the media. The, the role of newspapers is to put out news, and often we are seeing propaganda driven by the government we also have the silencing of the media, which to me is a very big concern. Under Scott Morrison, when he became immigration minister, the media was cut off from being able to report on the numbers of votes.
1: There's been accusations thrown about that one of the reasons why medical staff from Nauru have been expelled is exactly for that reason that they were speaking out and they were broadcasting the severity of the, the issues. Do you think that that's part of the reason why we've seen these medical
2: professionals be- yes yeah, absolutely because i think it became it, it came to the point where they could they knew they could no longer treat them there properly and so they they decided well, they just said we have to speak out. And because you can't, when you've got an international group of doctors and they're not um, beholden to Australia or to Nauru for that matter, but they feel they have to speak out, then they can't be controlled in the same way. And so Nauru expels them uh, and basically says they're lying. So I want to ask you briefly about what you
1: see as solutions or ways forward towards
2: good refugee policy? Well, I ask myself this quite often. I think that one of the biggest concerns to me in all my seven decades now of life, but I look at, you know, the world as it's developing and I remember a time when education um, was revered. So I grew up in, in the aftermath of World War II, in the shadow of Vietnam, And we had the really strong desire that the world would be better. So our education system in New Zealand, at least, was designed to say we may be people in a small country, but we want a better world. And and that's why I'm proud of New Zealand, because in the later years, too, we've stood up New Zealand understands, and this is not a pro-New Zealand thing it is, but I think what we understood was that in order to survive in the world, you have to understand your neighbours. Now, I don't see that happening in what's going on in our government here in Australia now. We cannot escape the fact that we are on an, in an international community. People are moving across the face of this planet like they never have before. These are huge issues that we cannot solve. By fear-mongering, we report on the negatives rather than the positives of our migration perspective. We can turn those things around and we can say, let's have a look at all the people who've succeeded, who've made their way in this country, and who are now proud citizens. They're proud to be here. We're proud to have them. Let's put some more of those that information out.
1: I feel like the overarching message of what you're saying is you know, a message of compassion, And you've been working in this sector for almost 50 years. Mm. How do you stay compassionate dealing with, I mean, heartbreaking issues and stories every day?
2: I don't know, to be honest. Sometimes I felt like killing myself because when you hear these horrid stories, these terrible stories where people have come from countries. I mean, you look at the the news in the last week. I was saying to Alison in my office this morning, when you think that a man walked into an embassy and had his fingers severed you think oh my god clearly that is abhorrent to all of us compassion yeah i have compassion but i also have developed over the year the balance i think in the other way where i say to myself i don't have compassion for people like scott morrison because he is just as complicit he may not be chopping people's fingers off but he thinks he's stopping people dying no he's complicit because he's punishing the very people who the punitive people they're fleeing from were punishing it's terrible to listen to people coming here day after day and and saying i need to have my citizenship In Australia. I lodged it six years ago, but it's not been processed, and I can't find out what's happening. And in the meantime, my wife and children are still at risk in Pakistan or Afghanistan or wherever. And I need to bring them here because I can't settle. I'm mentally unstable now because my family is not safe. You know, I know there are people we need to guard our own families against in the community. We need to guard our country against people who might come in here and seek to do us harm but we don't need to meet cruelty with cruelty and that's the problem that I have and I think I don't know I ask myself and many people ask me that question how do I keep going you know I think it's only again the sense that was that that I grew up with that they must never we must never let evil win Never in my lifetime will I see an end to war on this planet. It will probably never happen. But we cannot give in. We still have to create peace and harmony in our own communities. And then we can go out into the world and attempt to do the best we can to bring peace and harmony. We don't do that by creating division. So I guess what I see is, yes, I'm compassionate towards these people who come to me and who are vulnerable and who are asking me for help, and who do need it. And yes, I get tired of it. Yes, I get angry. I get frustrated. But I'm driven by the fact that I can see things that some of the people in power cannot see. I've seen the human condition, and I'm not driven by my own need to have power. I'm not driven by the need to have money. I'm simply driven, I guess, by a need to understand the human race and to say, if we can't get together in this world properly, if we can't live in harmony and peace in our own communities, then there is no hope for the world. And I want a world where my grandson can grow up in peace. I want a world where you'll be able to travel and see the most wonderful scenery that there is. I've been to many countries. I've been to Afghanistan. I've stood there among the mountains and and, and looked and thought, what an amazing country. But it's so unsafe. And when you ask people what do they need, do they ask for food? No. They ask for security. They ask for peace. The hope lies in people like you, actually, young people who are going to grow up and who are going to have that same desire to find out what really is happening here and how can we make things better. Anyway, there's, I don't know, to answer your question, I have no idea how I keep going. I want to stop. I really want to stop, but I can't. For some reason, I can't. I hear a person who's got a problem and I try to solve it. And most of the problems are bureaucratic. You know, they're mostly bureaucratic. And to go back to Manus and Nauru, that's bureaucratic and political. It can be solved by Scott Morrison, at the moment Scott Morrison, signing his signature to say bring them here. And that's what, in the name of decency, he should do.
1: Well, I think that from a lot of people whose lives that you've changed, I would like to say thank you for keeping on going. It's really impressive to hear about I mean, the breadth of your experience in refugee advocacy is pretty amazing. So thank you for doing that and thank you for talking to us about it.
2: No, thank you. It's been it's been lovely. You have been a lovely interviewer, I have to say. It's always, I don't know, you know, how much you got out of it, but I got a lot out of just watching you in action. So thank you. Thank
1: you. Well, I'm pleased I got to sit cross-legged on, on a <laughs> comfortable floor as opposed to the studio. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast this week. I certainly enjoyed meeting Marion, and I wish we had more time because she had a lot more to say that we could not fit into the pod. We've got a big podcast week coming up. Uh, Aside from our usual podcast on Friday, Policy Forum Pod, which will be on the future of Northern Australia, we also have a whole week of episodes coming out of the National Security podcast. And those episodes are going to be centred around the Women in National Security Conference occurring in Canberra this week. If you haven't got a ticket, this is the only way to access some of the expertise that is going to be in Canberra for the conference. All of the guests are amazing. So I'd recommend that one highly. I'll be producing so you can look forward to some very high quality audio. Thank you for listening and I'll catch you next week.